The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, we're uh, at the last uh, section there in the uh, syllabus, the notion of authority. And um, as I tried to um, warn you yesterday, I don't want you to think that um, here all of a sudden we'll, we'll come to the great revelation that will forever, um, you know, take care of any doubts that you might ever have about uh, these things. But uh, it is simply an attempt to lay some kind of groundwork and uh, trying to keep in mind the kinds of principles, the kinds of concerns that ought to be guiding our thinking uh, with regard to this question. And, um, you know, you can continue to think about it. It will come up again as you... Uh, deal with the Old Testament canon in the uh, next course. The notion of authority. Um, from the very beginning of this section of the course, uh, I have been stressing the close relationship. In fact, almost it's almost an identity between uh, the concepts of canon and authority. To say that something is canonical is to say that it is authoritative. And, uh, and that implies, by the way, that uh, it must have been so from the very beginning. In other words, um, from the initial stages of the formation of the canon, whatever is canonical is authoritative. A document, and I guess this is the thing to, um, to zero in on, a document does not become canonical by virtue of the fact that it is recognized by the church. You need to understand that. Now, let me just say parenthetically that part of the problem is a semantic one. Uh, you know, we, we, we do use the term in English to canonize, uh, the church canonizes a person, becomes a saint, uh, that kind of thing, or in a figurative sense, you might say, well, I'm canonizing my exam or whatever, and, and that uh, implies that I am uh, authorizing something or that the church is authorizing something. So, so that, there's a little bit of a problem in terms of the way in which these terms are used in various contexts. But theologically speaking, it is important to appreciate that a, that a document see, does not become canonical at the point where the church recognizes it to be authoritative. On the contrary, because a writing is inherently authoritative, it is canonical and therefore it establishes the church. So you see, I made this point before, the, uh, the connection the direction, if you will, 
is not from the church to the canon, but the other way around. It is not that somehow the church comes into existence in some sort of isolation from the canon, from the canonical writings, and then the church decides, well, we're going to make this our canon. It's exactly the reverse. You have a canon in the sense that you have these, uh, this collection of authoritative writings that produces, establishes, nurtures the church. And then upon further reflection, self-conscious reflection, if you will, the church acknowledges these books to have been the very things that brought the church into existence. <clears throat> so against Harnack, the church did not create the canon, whether through Marcion or uh, you know, in reaction to him, whatever. Rather, the canon, in a sense, created the church. Uh, Stonehouse's uh, article, or, or the section that um, is part of your reading there on authority, he makes the point on page 139 that, um, I think this is in reference to the Old Testament, I, I can't recall for sure, but he uses the expression that uh, the Old or New Testament uh, established itself in the organic life of the people of God. Uh, it is part of part and parcel you see of the of the actual life of the church and that also helps us to understand why say dr gaffin in particular uh, emphasizes that you cannot think of canon just as a thing because behind it lies the personal aspect which is inherent in the act of inspiration history therefore cannot be viewed as a causal succession of the brute facts, to use Van Til's terminology, but rather history must be viewed as the accomplishment of God's eternal counsel. So that when we look at the history of the canon and the development and, and the church's struggles and so on, um, we, we have to do that within the context of a coherent uh, understanding of, uh, of God's uh, workings uh, in, in the world and the church. So what's happening in the second, third, and fourth centuries is not uh, you know, some haphazard uh, series of unrelated events, but rather the, the manifestation of, of God's purposes for his people. The development of the canon, to put it differently, is the means where, whereby God asserts himself as canon, as his people's absolute authority. Think of that for a while. The development of the canon is the means whereby God asserts himself as canon, that is, as his people's absolute authority. And uh, it may be worth your while reflecting on that, you see, um, because, as I said uh, yesterday, when you look at the history of the formation of the canon, and there are many features uh, in that history that may be a little unsettling and disturbing and you begin to wonder what's going on. Is God in control or not? You know, are the people here trying to um, make uh, fallible judgments and, and how can we be sure? If, if you look at history as, you see, these isolated events, more or less independent of God's purposes, uh, it can be very troubling. But if you think of all that history and all that development, 
as the way, the very means by which God establishes his own authority, uh, then I think that gives you a somewhat different perspective and uh, leads you to evaluate things a little differently. Now, <clears throat> the uh, discussion yesterday about the criteria that the church has used at one point or another uh, with regard to the canonicity of the uh, New Testament writings, <clears throat> the, the conclusion that I was trying to uh, draw was that we cannot, in fact, appeal to anything higher than the canon, anything higher than Scripture itself, as, as an ultimate authority, as the thing that finally settles the issue. Where, where then does Scripture lead us? That is, how, how are we in, uh, meant to be looking at these kinds of concerns? Well, first of all, again, as a, a subheading in the outline, uh, let's reflect a little bit on the connection between redemption and revelation, that is, between God's acts in history, on the one hand, and his uh, communicating of his will to his people, on the other. Perhaps the, the most distinctive contribution of Ritterboss's uh, treatment that uh, I've asked you to read lies in his insistence that a proper understanding of the canon, a proper understanding of the canon, must arise from a biblical appreciation of redemptive history. If you really want to understand the canon, what it is, how it came about, all that, you have to do that within the framework of a biblical view of redemptive history. Now, the Bible bears witness and interprets God's activity. God's redemptive activity. That's not all that the Bible is, but I think uh, you need to appreciate how true it is and how um, appropriate in terms of de defining the character of Scripture it is to say that the Bible is a witness to God's redemptive activity and is not only a witness, but it also interprets for us those redemptive acts brings out their significance. <coughs> However, if that's all you say, you miss a, a very, very important uh, point, and that is that the Bible, being revelation, the Bible is itself a phenomenon <coughs> in, redempt in redemptive history. See, the Bible is not simply a witness to redemptive history. The Bible is itself a part of the, of the very historical process to which it bears witness. That is, the giving of revelation is itself a redemptive act. There's hardly anything more basic than the correlation between redemptive deed on the one hand and interpretive word on the other. I need always to keep that correlation in mind, the redemptive deed, the activity of God in history, and the interpretive word, the explanation for what's happening. And the correlation between those two things means, among other things, that high points in, in the one coincide with high points in the other. 
If there's a lot of redemptive activity, there's a lot of revelatory activity as well. Whereas times of redemptive inactivity correspond to periods of silence in the history of revelation. So, for instance, it is not surprising that in connection with the Exodus, there is this great redemptive act of God delivering his people from Egypt is accompanied by a tremendous amount of revelation. I mean, you have the, the Pentateuch, you have the Torah, you have the, um, this very full body of information, uh, communication, instruction, commandments. Whereas, and you can see this by, by taking a look at the uh, narratives of uh, the Old Testament uh, themselves, uh, you can see that there are periods of time in the Old Testament where there are no explicit uh, acts, you know, miraculous acts of God or whatever, and also you have a relative uh, absence of uh, revelation uh, during those periods. Now, when you come, you see, to the what in, in effect becomes the end of the Old Testament uh, canon, the rebuild, rebuilding of the temple, that appears to be the last objective act of redemption um, prior to the coming of Christ. And not surprisingly, you also have a period of silence, if you will. You have this intertestamental period, several centuries, uh, where the prophetic voice seems to be uh, absent. It was absent in, in a very real sense. Now, <clears throat> keep that general framework uh, in mind and uh, think of the next item here, the need for inscripturation. The need for inscripturation. You may recall the way in which the Westminster Confession of Faith addresses that issue at the very beginning of uh, the first chapter where um, you have that comment, for the better press preserving, for the better preserving, uh, God commits these things to writing. In other words, you, you do find in Scripture uh, that God reveals himself in various ways to um, uh, the saints of the Old Testament. And um, usually there's, some, there's an oral aspect to it. But um, there was the need for preservation for the upbuilding of, of God's people. And so inscripturation becomes, becomes an essential feature in the history of uh, Revelation, which now becomes part of the history of redemption as well, because the writing of God's revelation is a redemptive uh, deed in, in itself. A lot of people uh, today, and in fact for quite a while now, uh, find, uh, have been finding the word inscripturation offensive. It, it sounds like, uh, you know, here's a, um, a static view of, of God and his people to inscripturate. It sounds so cold, you know. Um, this is really against the genius of, of, uh, of the biblical message and so on. But uh, I think it's being a little unrealistic, to put it mildly, uh, to, uh, to view it that way. Because uh, there's a great deal in the, uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that uh, leads us to appreciate the importance and the significance of inscripturation as a means 
of preserving that truth for generations because if, if you have oral communication that, that gets messed up much more quickly, much more easily. Uh, it is not a, uh, by coincidence or mistake that God makes a point of writing with his own finger on tablets of stone. Uh, you know, stone may be cold um, in one sense, but uh, we better be glad that, that we have that, that the firmness, if you will, in the way in which God has uh, communicated himself to his people. If you read carefully, people like Harnack and Kampenhausen and even Kummel, um, you will see that right here is the heart of the matter. Harnack was the most blatant, you know, when he made that comment about the church, the canon chasing the spirit into a book and so on. But there are all kinds of telltale signs in, in the other writers as well. Uh, people who regard inscripturation as, as, as undesirable or at least a second best kind of thing. Uh, much is made sometimes of a little comment by Ignatius when he writes to the Philadelphians and uh, he says something about, uh, you know, wanting to say things orally. And, and, and there's a comment by Papias uh, who had very high regard for the living tradition. Uh, the living tradition almost implies that the letter, you see, if it's written down, then, then it's, uh, it kills or something. Uh, but I think this misses the point altogether. For that matter, you know, if you read Third John, he also makes that comment, I wish I could say these things to you by word of mouth rather than by, of course, you know, personal interaction uh, has certain advantages. But uh, I, th I think it misses the point not to see the other side of it. The fact is that all that the very beginning of the history of Israel, at that fundamental moment of revelation on Sinai, God writes his law with his finger. Uh, again, in Jeremiah, the writing of a book takes on crucial significance. Uh, and uh, Jesus, uh, not without reason, uh, speaks about the, it is written. He doesn't say, Rabbi such and such says, over again, Rabbi such and such says, that's what you find in the Mishnah all the time. Jesus says, it is written. <clears throat> but most of the point the New Testament apostles themselves see writing as the need, as a need, you see, for the church in view of their anticipated death. Uh, that may already be reflected in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, uh, where he speaks about, I'm writing these things so that you may have fullness of joy. Uh, that is, you see, over against what we have seen, what our eyes have seen, and what our hands have touched, and yet we're writing these things so that your joy may be full. Uh, even more explicit is uh, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, who speaks about the more sure word of revelation. Uh, again, chapter 3, the first two verses that we looked at the last time. <clears throat> now, all of that, I think, takes us to this uh, crucial question of uh, a closed canon. <clears throat> See, if, if you've been alert uh, to some of the things that we've been talking about the last few days, you, you, you should pick up that, in a sense, we already talked about the reasons why the canon must be viewed as closed. In a sense, no other conclusion is consistent with the factors that we've been looking at. <clears throat> Consider the relationship between the history of redemption and the history of revelation. The death of Christ is exaltation, 
including the uh, events at Pentecost. That network of events is the final event in redemptive history prior to the parousia. There is no more objective redemptive activity prior to the second coming. And therefore, uh, you would expect a lull as well in revelatory activity. This is further confirmed by the disappearance of the apostolate, which is precisely what made inscripturation necessary. Remember, the apostles are the witnesses to this last great objective act of redemption. They speak in the name of Christ. Uh, they were personally instructed by him. They are, they are given the spirit so that they, who, who, that, who will, would lead them to all truth and so on. As their death is anticipated, inscripturation becomes necessary. The putting down in writing of, of this witnessing to that great event in uh, uh, redemptive history. Now, obviously, if you think of Revelation, if, if you think of Revelation essentially or primarily as supernatural directions for individuals, if that's your conception of what Revelation is, then you're going to feel perhaps uncomfortable by a certain sense of incompleteness in the Bible. Why? Because, all right, uh, I'm trying to make a decision, you know, whom should I marry? Right. And um, they're all these men after you, or all these women after you, whatever. And you have to make a decision. <clears throat> and you read the Bible over and over, and you just don't find an explicit direction. You see. So you may feel the Bible is not complete because it's not helping me, you know, not, not telling me what I must do in this very important event or finding a job or moving to, you know, all these things. And uh, you know, there's a, a sense of urgency sometimes, and, and uh, there's some Christian groups that have capitalized on that, and, and, you know, they have their own apostles or whatever, and, and if you ever have a decision to make, you consult with your apostle. Uh, and it seems to meet some kind of psychological need or, or whatever. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? If, if you think that revelation consists primarily in giving you some kind of explicit directions uh, for making uh, you know, decisions and so on, then there, there will be this sense of, you know, I need more. And I need more also because look how life has changed from the times of the apostles. Apostles didn't have to deal with computers and... and uh, all of you know modern technology and and uh, and so I need some additional help from God, you see, to deal with the questions that are being dealt with today. But to the extent that we see revelation rather as the attestation and the interpretation of the objective events of re of redemption, to the extent that we see Revelation, rather, as the attestation and the interpretation of objective, redemptive events, then, as I said, no other option makes sense than that of a closed canon. 
And here again, uh, I think that Hebrews is particularly to the point, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God spoke in many ways at different times, but in these last days, He has spoken to us, there's that sense of finality in the Son. Or in, in chapter 2, verses uh, 3 and 4. You see, to seriously question, to seriously question whether the church made a mistake, and I'm not talking about you know, your subjective doubts, all of us have doubts of that kind, but, but I mean seriously question the sense of, of challenging that, uh, that uh, factor, whether the church made a mistake or whether the canon is open, you know, something is missing here, is to imply that God has not concerned himself, basically, with the preservation of his word. It, it, it I think, assumes a picture where God, oh yeah, God is the originator, of these inspired books, but um, fallible human beings desperately are searching around for these spirated documents, trying to figure out what they are. So the Bible is almost viewed as, as a human anthology of divine writings, a human anthology of divine writings. And, and uh, you see, that's a, a kind of a massive denial of the unity of Scripture. But if the canon is rather unqualified, absolute authority, then in a sense, an open canon is a contradiction in terms. Now let me move on to this last thing, a Christian assurance and the appeal to providence. I uh, can uh, handle that in just a couple of minutes and then I'll open it up for questions. <clears throat> Obviously, there are some ambiguities both historically and theologically and experientially when you're dealing with this kind of thing. Christian assurance, the doctrine of Christian assurance does not mean that uh, we, are, we can come up with answers to every question that arises. And you don't want to fall into that trap of thinking that unless you have an answer for everything, then you cannot have genuine Christian assurance. Now, you don't want to go to the other extreme and become irrational fideists, you know, and, and uh, glory in the fact that you don't have any answers, you know. Now this becomes a, a source for, uh, for uh, boasting, you know. Um, I don't have an answer for anything. See, I, all I have is faith. Uh, again, to use the analogy with, with the existence of God, just as we cannot prove God's existence or prove the doctrine of inspiration uh, so we cannot prove the correctness of our canon in that sense. Proof by definition implies the subjection of that which is being judged to the higher canon of human autonomy. So that if you could prove scripture, you would lose scripture as your final authority. The acceptance of the canon is indeed an act of faith. Let's not uh, be, make any mistakes about that. The acceptance of the canon is indeed an act of faith. But to say that it is an act of faith is not to imply that uh, we're rejecting scientific study or that we're dismissing the evidence that we have been looking at. Quite the contrary. This faith commitment is strengthened by the evidence of God's providential work. 
let me put it in, in, you know, from the negative point of view, if my faith were contradicted by all the evidence, if my faith were contradicted, for example, if, uh, if you looked at the history and, and you saw that um, Christians all over the Roman uh, Empire for five, six, seven centuries or something uh, couldn't agree on anything, you know, uh, some people used Matthew, other people used Luke, and, and they were uh, fighting over this matter. Um, then I think you'd have a serious problem that you'd have to deal with. I'm suggesting to you that the historical evidence of this remarkable, uh, undisputed agreement over the bulk of the New Testament is, is a factor that uh, ought to strengthen your, your perception of how God is working through his through the lives of his people. I want to argue that the evidence as a whole makes the most sense when viewed in terms of faith. doesn't mean that I have an answer for every question or, or a, a response to every objection. But I hope you realize that people who take a different position don't have an answer to every objection. Uh, and, and so that that's not you know, kind of a fair comparison, if you will, in, uh, in coming to terms with a particular position. Now, what am I saying? Uh, we must simply accept it all on faith. Well, that's a little simplistic, and in, in a sense it misrepresents what I'm trying to get across here. Uh, if, if, if what you're getting from all of this is, well, you know, we just have to accept the canon by faith, and that's all you're saying, that's, uh, that's not, uh, I think, an appropriate way of handling it. I wouldn't have wasted all these hours uh, going through the historical and the biblical and the theological material. I think that, that our study has shown that there's harmony between the, uh, the self-witness of Scripture on the one hand and the church's recognition of the canon on the other. The consensus of the churches is a very, very clear proof of providential work. It's not the criterion that establishes the canon, remember, but it is demonstration of God's providential work. And the remaining disputes, you know, over a few of the books in the third and uh, part of the fourth century, that is evidence that there was no collusion involved and no artificial imposition. On the contrary, there was carefulness on the part of, of the early Christians on, on this matter. They debated because this was important to them. They debated and discussed this matter because they didn't want to make mistakes and they didn't want to take things for granted. And um, it, it ought to be a, a measure of encouragement to you that you don't have some individual getting up and say, okay, this is going to be the canon, or even one church deciding that, or even one council deciding that uh, somehow from the top down but that instead you have this remarkable harmony coupled with evidence that they weren't just being thoughtless about this, but they were weighing all the considerations carefully. The unquestioned agreement regarding at least 85% or 90% of the New Testament is impossible to explain apart from God's providential guidance. And it is the, the clearest evidence that the canon had indeed formed the church, and that the church simply recognized its origin when it acknowledged the canon 
uh, that was before them. So, so try to keep things in, in some kind of perspective here. Uh, pay attention to the historical evidence because I think that sheds light on the wind which, uh, in, on the character of the, of, the, uh, of the canon itself, on the wind which God has brought his, uh, his redemptive work to, uh, uh, to, a, to the state that it can provide that nurture for the church. But in the final analysis, uh, it is true that your uh, faith commitment in terms of uh, your identification with Christ and with his word uh, becomes, becomes in, the, in the real sense, your subjection to scripture as its own final authority. And that uh, you dare not go beyond that in an attempt to, uh, to make you feel better uh, uh, you know, emotionally in terms of, of your sense of assurance. Okay, questions in there, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, all of us realize that um, God didn't simply drop down the whole canon on the day of Pentecost. And you could ask that question, uh, I mean, a, a Christian on the day of Pentecost receives a revelation, you know, Peter is speaking and so on. But he hasn't received all of it yet. And, and I think it, it is simply recognition that you have a period of transition uh, during the, uh, the, uh, the apostolic period where in the context of the life of the church, uh, God is, through the apostles, bringing that fullness of revelation to the people. <coughs> and so any one of the churches, you know, Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he writes to Corinth, and the Corinthians don't have Philippians, you know. But, you see, they have the apostles in a sense. I mean, the, the, so there is this a period of transition. And that's why I said, as the apostles anticipate their death, these things are being written so that when you come to the end of the apostolic period, uh, then you have that fullness of revelation there in, in the collection. Presumably. And, and they would have had access uh, I think, I mean, we don't know when the Hebrews was written for sure, but uh, presumably they would have had access to, again, the, the, that apostolic period. But, you know, I, I, maybe you're making a little bit too much of, of that statement. Um, I don't think that the Hebrews were in a different position from the other churches in this regard. But what I'm saying is that's, I think that's true of all the churches. And I don't, I don't think so much at this point is, you know, they couldn't bear it. I mean, I know that's part of the, of the passage, but, but please keep in mind that Hebrews is about as difficult a, a book as you can find in the whole New Testament. So, um, but I don't think that's the major concern. The, the, the major concern is that, that each letter was written within a particular historical context. Uh, and so when Paul writes to any one church, he doesn't give the church everything. He gives them what's needed for that particular moment, you see. Uh, and then God in his wisdom, you know, has provided for all the needs of the church once the whole collection comes together. I'm not really sure what you're... What, I would just simply say that whenever the apostles spoke in, in, in their authoritative capacities, apostles, that was inspired. That would be my position. Yeah. <coughs> Women taking adultery, yes. Okay, now, do, do you mean that as a text critical question or as a canonical question? Yeah, the, the reason I'm asking is because it depends on what, what you, I mean, if you're just asking the very practical question, 
But I don't know whether you're asking a question about the nature of the canon. Not necessarily. Because I would want to argue, see, I think it's very important to distinguish between text-critical problems on the one hand and the question of canonicity on the other. The Gospel of John is canonical. Okay, that's, that's one thing. Then another question is, what was the original form of the book of, of the Gospel of John in terms of its transmission? Since we see that there are some textual differences among the manuscripts, we're not trying to, to uh, ascertain as closely as possible the, the original form of, but that's a different problem. It's not a problem of canonicity, but a problem of, of, uh, of uh, textual integrity, or whatever you may want to call it. In terms of the, of the practical uh, question, I've, I mean, that's a decision you have to make yourself, in a sense. Uh, if, you know, if you study the textual problem and you decide, yeah, probably that passage was not an original, was not in the original form of the Gospel of John, it would seem to be wise not to treat it as though it were in a part of Scripture. Um, now, how you deal with it in any one church also depends on, on the people that you're talking to. I mean, you know, you have to take people at their level of, of growth and understanding and so on. And, uh, you know, I don't think with a very young uh, Christian congregation you want to raise all these problems all of a sudden. But... Um, uh, just try to be sensitive to to where the needs of, of the people are that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah there would be an essay. Mm -hmm. No, just 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 a one, just one question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> not much authority. Um, I, I don't want to. Uh, I mean, I don't want to trivialize it either. But I would not make very much theologically of the particular order because we do know that, for example, the epistles of Paul are basically according to length. That's all. Um, I, now, there are some people who have tried to um, see some kind of theological development you know, from book to book, and, and some of those are interesting. They're not totally convincing. Yes? Same thing. Um, <coughs> yeah, the, the, the textual evidence is fairly strong that that last portion of Mark 16 was not part of the original form of the Gospel of Mark. But it, like, you know, like most of these things, it's, it's not as though you can demonstrate that with absolute certainty. But it's just very, very difficult to, uh, to explain why that is not in, in, in the earliest um, uh, witnesses to the gospel, it's just not there. And it's difficult to come up with a good explanation of that unless it wasn't part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this, this gets complicated by an exegetical question. And that is whether verse 8 looks like a possible ending for a book. For both a and Gar, because they were afraid. You uh, even finish with a gar, um, and people say, has, does any other book finish with a gar? Um, and uh, I, I don't have a problem with that myself. In fact, uh, Stonehouse in his book on the witness of, of uh, Mark and Matthew to Christ um, makes a, what I think is a rather persuasive point that this fits very, very coherently 
with a theme in, in the Gospel of Mark about that sense of awe that Jesus' life uh, had uh, produced in people. But uh, some people don't like that ending, and, and they figure, well, maybe there was another ending, and it got lost or something, and then somebody came up with this longer one. That It's all speculation. Yeah? It's really very simple in, at one level. Let's suppose that you all of a sudden become inspired, and you write a letter to the church in Atlanta, Georgia, okay? And that, that's inspired, it's plenary inspiration, verbal inspiration, it's inerrant. Now, your neighbor there takes a copy, takes that thing, and decides to make a copy. And he's not inspired. Now, does the fact that he makes a copy that is defective, does that change the character of what you did? Not at all. Uh, now, that's why evangelicals have been careful to say that when, when you're making these kinds of statements about the character of Scripture, you, you, you qualify it and say now in, in the original documents, in the original writings, because God never said that any time any fool decided to make a copy of the Bible, he was going to be kept from making errors. When the New American Standard Bible came out, uh, the first edition, they misspelled the word Galatians. Uh, it's a printed form, you know, and, and any printed Bible that you find, you're going to see some mistakes in it. Uh, what does that mean? It means that the printer made a mistake. It has nothing to do with the character of Scripture as such. Um, now, I, I don't deny that it does introduce a certain ambiguity. Uh, but, um, see, textual ambiguities are the most trivial of all. If we want to be worried about something, let's be worried about matters of interpretation. You really want to get unsettled and troubled? How is it, why is it, you know, that Christians cannot agree on things like baptism, you know, or now questions about uh, divorce or abortion? I mean, the biggest things that are. And that's ambiguity for you. And, and they don't depend, I mean, those differences do not depend on textual variation. Uh, so, we, we, whether we are conscious of this or not, we all acknowledge that there are a lot of uncertainties. Um, and, and textual uncertainty is the most trivial of them all, as far as I can see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Just as a, as a matter of pure practical character, if you start mathematically trying to figure this out, you realize that you know, you could be in a church for 40 years and uh, you still wouldn't touch everything, you know. Um, say if you were the pastor of the church and then you were very careful about it, you still wouldn't touch everything. Uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind, whether you're a pastor or whether you're involved in Sunday school teaching or any of these kinds of things. Uh, you don't want this to be purely artificial in the sense, well, I've got to cover everything. And so regardless of the needs of the church or regardless of, you know, so many other factors I'm going to, uh, and that probably isn't very productive. But uh, it does make sense, you know, some people strongly encourage, and I think it's a good idea that pastors ought to have a long-range uh, uh, plan, you know. I'm, I'm going to be preaching a series on the Gospels, and then I'm going to be preaching a series on the Prophets, and a series on the Epistles, and a series on the Narratives of the Old Testament. That's, I think, good. Uh, but I think even beyond that, and, and this is where perhaps the canonical function of the books has greater relevance, 
is that in the actual preparation of Bible studies and sermons and so on, uh, regardless of what your focus of attention may be, you are sufficiently sensitive to bring in, you know, as much variety in terms of, of uh, the rest of the canon in support of or illustration of whatever passage your, your primary focus is on. And I think, uh, I mean, that purely in terms of, of hermeneutic method, her, method in hermeneutics, it's a very good idea to find as many parallels as you can, um, but uh, it also has this other uh, benefit that uh, it exposes people with some frequency to, to the breadth of the canonical uh, writings. You have about three minutes to ask me questions about the final exam. <laughs> I mean, by now you should know I'm a pushover, really. Yeah. And the last what? In a sense, that fits in with the question whether there's some significance in the order of the books in the New Testament. And um, I suppose you could make a case for it. I, I um, you know, in God's providence, Revelation, there is at the end, and you have these warnings about, uh, uh, you know, adding or subtracting or whatever. Um, I, I wouldn't want to make too much of it, but, but maybe there is a connection. Yeah. Question back? Uh, basically the same thing. I, I think in this exam I have maybe 45, 40, 40 or 45 multiple choice and a uh, matching question of about 15 possibly. And then there will be an essay on canon. Um, and what I want to see is, you know, have you been reflecting on, on these things? Do you understand the arguments uh, for some of these positions? Um, the, uh, probably the essay uh, will focus on, on the biblical and theological issues. Uh, they may touch on the historical, and, and you will want to be able to use data from the historical material in support of your answer. But you should probably give, uh, pro you know, just reflect a lot on these theological questions, both from the lecture notes. The article by Gaffin, I think, would be very helpful. Um, the Stonehouse, Ritterboss. Uh